I was interested in, in Helen's um, mention of how you might feel a bit nervous as, as newer researchers giving your presentations. And I've given quite a few, as she said, I've been, as Shan said, I've been around quite a long time. Um, and I still feel extremely nervous. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. If anybody's got any techniques for getting rid of pre-presentation nerves, just let me know. So I'll be talking to you this morning about tribal identities. That's around academic identities and the notion that we as tribes, um, we as academics, are in tribes. Big, nice notion, but we'll be looking at that. And the, the point that I'll be making is that I've got reservations, really, around that, that maybe it's a really nice romantic notion, but not necessarily terribly helpful in the work that we're doing in the context that we're working in nowadays in academia. It might have been relevant, if I think back to my years as an undergraduate, um, I was at St. Andrews University, a bit of a fish out of water, but in Hispanic studies, as I started off my life, we would go to the prof's office each morning at 11 and have freshly brewed coffee. And there were only eight in my year group, so we all got to know each other pretty well. Um, and probably the tribes that, you know, the, of the Romantic era were present in those days at St. Andrews, but I'm really not sure whether even there now they, they, they still exist. Um, let me just ask, is anybody a Ridley Scott fan, filmmaker? Yeah? We've got one. Right, I'm going to test you. It's always a mistake to put your hand up to answer a question. <laughs> Have you not realised this yet? Right, which film does this come from? All he'd wanted was the same as the rest of us, the same answers as the rest of us want. Where did I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? <laughs> okay, it's Blade Runner. It's one of the mutants, wonderful film, one of the mutants in Blade Runner who suddenly realizes or realizes over time that he's a mutant and his time is running out. So without wanting to sound too theological about this, it really rang a bell for me thinking about higher education is changing before our very eyes and our identities as academics are also changing. So that's the topic I would like to cover this morning. Never work with technology, children or animals. It worked before, okay, never mind. Um, what I'll be talking about, oh sorry, coming back to the Blade Runner thing, um, the, the, the mutant in question was asking, where am I going? How long have I got? And for me, the much bigger question is, where are we going? How long have we got? And my perspective on this is within social practice theory, which of course um, really focuses on communities and people within them and context and locales. So the I question is important, but the we question is also very important. That's the underpinning of the book that I will be um, basing today's talk on. And that was, I keep forgetting this isn't working, um, the third book, the first one that 
Paul Trowler, Murray Saunders and I worked on. Both of these were published by the very kindly by SRHE. The first one was about managing, managing change in learning and teaching in higher education. And the second one was evaluation. Now that I've got the advert out of the way, um, what I'm going to cover this morning is this idea of tribes and territories that is covered in that third book, but an updated notion of it. I will give you and we will discuss some examples from different disciplines, and you'll notice it says, what will we cover? You'll be much relieved to hear I'm not going to speak for an hour and a quarter. I will be asking you to talk amongst yourselves. We'll talk a, a little bit about social practice and we'll talk about the value of metaphors. Metaphors are wonderful things, but sometimes they can obscure truths rather than shed light on them. So I will be questioning the tribe meta metaphor. So the Tribes for the 21st Century's book has as its main thesis that we are defined by our subject discipline, and that's really what identifies us and places us in tribes. Three big words there, discipline, identity, and tribes. So I will be questioning whether or not that was the, well, I won't question whether that was the case back then, but I will question whether that is the case now. So as I said earlier, tribes, very colorful, very romantic, lovely idea. I love the idea of being part of a tribe. And I remember when the Higher Education Academy, or ILT as it then was, first started to have conferences. And I didn't like it because I thought, these are not my tribe. These are not my community that I really feel part of. These are not my network. It was too diffuse, too diverse. So we all really, well, I think we do like the idea of tribes, but what does it actually mean? You're maybe sitting there having this kind of image, and some of you who are more musically inclined might be having that kind of image with all sorts of interpretations along the way. Um, I did this word cloud. Couldn't believe how easy this was. Have you tried doing word clouds? It is so clever. Anyway, um, I had a look through some of the literature on disciplines and picked out what seemed to be recurring terms. And not surprisingly, research, the social nature of disciplines, the body of knowledge, the object of research, the culture, what is accepted and part of our system um, within a discipline, within a tribe, um, those were the things that kept turning up. There were some slightly less positive words like cartels that made us seem like we might be fighting some battles and keeping out the outsiders from our tribes. But I thought there was some, some interesting vocabulary there. And I'll give you an alternative word, Cloud, an alternative take on this a little later. Get rid of this so I stop clicking on it. Okay, so some questions for us to think about is, are we defined by our discipline? Is that where we get our identity from? Are we parts of tribes? Um, in my own case, let me give you an example. 
I feel like I've been part of about 20 tribes. I started off as a Spanish lecturer and I've worked in six different universities as an academic around the UK. And I feel as if I was in a different, very different culture in each one of those universities with different ways of practicing, different expectations, different ways of behaving. Now, whether I was ever in a Hispanist tribe, I'm not awfully sure. Um, in educational development, which is my current discipline, um, I sometimes feel that I'm in a discipline group as if I'm in a traditional tribe. Sometimes I feel not at all. There are so many variations amongst educational developers, so, so many orientations. When I arrived last night, somebody said, oh, you're in educational development, so you're a technology person. No, I'm not. But that was an interesting take on it. So, here's a, a question for you. And I would like you to take a minute to think about this and to discuss it with people at your table. So, what is your identity? And if you can see the graphic in the background, there are some sticks of seaside rock. And if you visualize a stick of rock, what's it got? It's got lettering that runs all the way through the middle, hasn't it? Do you remember those things? Rot your teeth as soon as you look at them? Um, so, are we lettered as academics, as researchers? Do we have that lettering going right through our core? Is that what our identifiers are? Are those what our identifiers are? Historian, biologist, Hispanist, educational developer. So what I would like you to think about is, what is it for you? What's your identity? And have you got this thing running through your core or is it something different from that? So I'll just give you a minute to think and then I'll ask you to discuss that at your tables and give you a few minutes for doing so. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to discuss this, but I won't ask you to tell us your secrets. Just a couple of minutes to discuss. Okay, thanks everybody. You will have some more time to continue the conversation as we go through. Let's just have a little show of hands. Who feels like they are fairly strongly identified? I mean, I know that, again, is very open to interpretation, but who feels that they're strong, fairly strongly identified by their discipline? Yeah? Who feels that there's other stuff there that identifies you? Okay, I don't think there's any point in me talking any further. You, <laughs> you've sorted it. <laughs> okay, what I would like to go on and do is to tease that out a bit more. So, um, some problems with disciplinarity and the idea that we are defined by our discipline. First one is interdisciplinary boundaries. Those can be very, very hazy. Where does one stop? Where does another one start? Can you think of any examples 
disciplines that you know with indistinct boundaries? Education, absolutely. I work with a lot of health sciences disciplines. Older students do anatomy. So there are real crossovers between those different disciplines. Of course, for universities, that's great news because it means you can pile them high and sell them cheap and put all the anatomy students into one room, whether they are physiotherapists or nurses or whatever. But lots of fuzzy boundaries in between disciplines. And therefore, lots of inter interdisciplinary wars, potentially, especially when we come to times of reduction in resource. Intradisciplinary wars. So within the same discipline, can you think of any examples of that? Sorry, quantitative versus qualitative. Absolutely. So... You, know, you are not a proper social scientist because you're a quants person and I'm qualitative. Absolutely. So whether it's in your methodology or the content of what you research or teach, lots of examples. And I used to, as a hispanist, you know, what, what was a discipline? Was it languages or was it the specific languages? Because as a hispanist, I would have nothing to do with the French and the Russians. <laughs> They were different from us. So I don't know whether that's inter or intradisciplinary. So internal disputes about content, for example. What is legitimate to teach or to research within our discipline? Or as someone at the back said, how to research it. Furthermore, disciplines are definitely not standing still. Again, can you give me an example? You think, sorry? Yeah, absolutely. So that's mutating over time. Yeah. I've got an example in here, which is a really interesting one, of nursing. Nursing did not used to be a proper academic subject, and it has evolved over time, where now there are professors in nursing, there is research in nursing, but that's all reasonably recent. So that has changed over and will continue to change over time. So you get disciplines reconfiguring into new disciplines. Again, any examples? Sorry? Nanotechnology, absolutely. Something completely new. Yep. And also subspecialisms. Nanotechnology could be one of those. And splitting off of disciplines into completely new forms. Again, can you think of an example? Sociolinguistics and variations in that. Okay, thank you. And then there's what Bernstein refers to as discipline as curriculum versus discipline as research. In other words, is what you teach your students the same as what you research? Are they both part of your discipline? Or is what goes on with the students something quite different? There is a reference list at the end of the presentation, by the way, and all of it will be up on the conference website, I think, by the end of today. Um, and there are differences between sites. 
So I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to think of examples of, if you've worked in different universities, how different the subject and the disciplinary ethos might be. Um, and I won't make any comparisons, but I'm sure you can think of some. Okay. Um, one of the things that is meant to be essential to a discipline is the epistemology. It's how we know what we know and how we get to understand that discipline. Um, so I'd like to now go on to epistemology and whether that helps us to see that in fact disciplines are wonderful packages that, we, that are distinct. You can guess the answer, can't you? Okay. Um, if, are you familiar with Biglin? Yeah, I love Biglin because I really love being able to categorize things. I love frameworks. I love things that you can capture in a diagram or a model. And, and Biglin does that um, with epistemological paradigms. Um, so basically, Biglin said, this is a gross simplifi simplification, that subjects can be hard and soft, not hard in the difficult sense, but whether there's, there are very firm boundaries around what is legitimate to cover within that, that, that discipline and pure or, and applied. So we've got this kind of matrix going on. Um, and there's a lot has been based on Biglin since the 70s and people still use it and I still use it. I think it's a really useful heuristic. But it may be what Paul Trowler calls a disabling dualism. When you see, when the two extremes of something actually obscure, or they give us an easy answer that make us stop questioning what the realities are behind the two ends of a spectrum. So the, um, the poor old mathematicians are an easy group to, to pick on, um, because they do seem the most essentialist of all the disciplines, because I don't understand mathematics. Um, so I've chosen these two um, pictures to illustrate that, yes, disciplines can be placed within these axes, but actually it's not that simple. And maybe we are stopped from understanding what is going on in maths if we take this um, very, what's the word, diametric approach to understanding it. There have been a lot of writers since Biglin who have encouraged us to take a much more nuanced approach to understanding disciplines. So I will not go through all of these, but these are all people who have been writing about main, yep, teaching and learning, in the disciplines, but who see it within a much more nuanced, much more complex frame. And again, the references are all at the end of the presentation. So, the 21st Century Tribes book says that if we look at epistemology in a very essentialist way, that doesn't help us to understand and cope with the complexity of what is going on in our disciplines, in our subject departments in HE today. 
At the other extreme, Ron Barnett talks about supercomplexity and epistemological pandemonium. I don't think that reflects the real situation either. What I think is that pandemonium, there is a certain amount of change and moving around and atoms bouncing off each other, but it has patterns and key features. So it's not just simply chaos. You, the patterns are visible and they are still helpful. From the perspective of social practice theory, what that theoretical frame brings to this consideration is that the intellectual territory of the discipline, the epistemology, is very, very important. But there are other things, identities, discourse, cultural configurations, social context, changes over time, and those things work on this epistemology, on this intellectual territory, and they keep moving it and pushing it into different spaces in some of the ways that we mentioned previously. So, let's come back to you and another question. A few of you said that you do think of yourself as having a distinct identity. Lots of you said that you didn't. So what on earth am I going to do with this question? <laughs> I wrote it not anticipating your smart answer. If you were in a tribe, <laughs> to what extent do the tribes that you know are, are, or are aware of? So think of discipline groups, think of departmental groups. They may not quite be tribes with warring barons and all the other aspects of the metaphor, but to what extent do people within the departments that you know share coherent practices, values, standards, <coughs> approaches to activities like teaching and research. What are the things that you think that they share in common in terms of their behaviours, the way they tackle things, their approach to things, and maybe what are the differences as well? So I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to discuss that. I will ask each, not each table, but I'll ask some of you for an example. And can you make sure that all of you are at least in a group of some sort and get the chance to, to discuss? So I'll give you a few minutes. Okay, in a second, I'm going to ask for a couple of examples. A couple of examples. Oh, that made you all go quiet, didn't it? I would like one example of where you think that people are sharing coherent, fairly coherent practices, values, standard approaches, and one example maybe where you think that isn't happening, where it might have been expected. Has anybody got an example that would like, they would like to offer, and Mark's going to bring the roving mic over? This is the point at which, just like students, everybody looks at their papers. <laughs> Thinks she doesn't mean me. I'm not doing it. They can do it. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Jean. Um, what I find at the institution that I'm at is that faculties don't expect academic developers to be doing research other than what is faculty related. And we have our own interests. So for the past few years, we've been um, struggling or it's been a challenge to get academic um, uh, respect yeah. in, in that way. And while we have our own topics of research linked to teaching, but of our own interests, many faculties don't feel that, that we have the right to do that because we are serving um, the university in a different sense rather than serving our own research. But our research interest is teaching and not necessarily faculty related. Okay. So I find that as a tribe we share that, but it's um, opposite to what the rest of the university might feel we should be doing. Okay, so that's an interesting point, Jean. What you're saying is that one of the identifiers of maybe any academic tribe is to be doing research. And the fact that you're not seen to be doing that maybe diminishes how others see you and, and your own self-confidence in a way. But my, my most unfavourite opening at a party is when somebody says to you, oh, so you're part of the administration then? i.e. you're not academic, you don't do research, you're just one of those kind of managerial back office types. Yeah, okay, so that's a, an interesting point. Thank you very much. Can we take one other example of where yes or no, you feel coherence is present? It's, um, my, uh, I am actually working on researching the research culture. The, very specifically, I, I, want, I want to share two findings of my research in, with respect to teaching. Most of the teaching faculty in that context, they're focusing on just sharing the knowledge with the students. They're more focused to disseminate the knowledge. And with respect to research, they just focus on research for the sake of promotion. If they have more publication, their salary might be more, their rank might be high. This is two major findings that I, am, I found from empirical data in that particular context. Thank you. So what are you saying that this lovely romantic tribal group is actually a group of self-seeking people who are <laughs> all desperately <laughs> trying to get promotion rather than there for the love of the discipline? Yeah? Oh, yeah. yeah. Research excellence framework, impact agenda. I'm sure some of you will be talking about this in the course of the day. Okay, interesting examples. Thank you very much. I will now carry on. Um, we could spend all day just on that question, but I'd like to go into now thinking about how do we get away from the idea that I'm a pure discipline specialist. I do research. I am an expert in my field, and this is my field, into what the realities of our daily life are now. So that's what I would like to go into. And SPT is social practice theory. Um, and I'm coming back to that as something which helps us to understand some of those realities, some of those complexities. So, for example, we are not in an inflexible disciplinary framework. Sometimes it feels like 
you're in one of those kind of balloons where you're stretching it from the inside, constantly pushing against the, the, the frame of it. So the, the inflexibility, the stability that disciplinarity assumes is just not there. We are constantly reworking our disciplinary norms and constantly reconstructing what it means to be a member of our discipline. Recreating what we do, how we do it, who we do it with, when we do it. We're constantly doing that. So individuals, academics, researchers, are not dummies that get carried along in their disciplinary tide. They are individuals who are co-constructing and enacting the culture and the norms of their discipline in their day-to-day -day practices, in everything that they do. So a very important element of this, and especially now, ubiquitous change in HE, is the changing nature of disciplines over time and the constant influence of what I'll call shifting territories. And that's all the stuff that affects what the discipline stands on. So the territory that we stand on is constantly moving. We're having to constantly adjust to it. Those non-epistemological factors, we will come back to what some of those are, but they, there are many of them, and I think we are seeing a heightening of the influence of those factors as we go through. You know when you put animation into slides? It's never a good idea. It never does what you think. Here's my, my second alternative word cloud. And this is when looking through a number of papers, I was thinking about what are the territories that are changing and shifting and that are affecting the things that were in that original word cloud around what a discipline is. And you can see the big words are economic change, funding, relevance, the whole purpose and nature of higher education is being called into question. I'd, I'm, I'm sure that you are living some of these things in the rest of the UK, but certainly the Scottish Government could not push any harder on universities, for example, to raise the employability stakes. Now, that isn't what university was like, A, when I was a student, B, when I did a postgrad, C, when I started lecturing. So the whole purpose of education and the way that we do things, interdependency, impact, turbulence, interdisciplinarity, massification, interconnectivity, changing priorities, targets, performativity, research grants and income, a lot of these things are the changing territories that are impinging increasingly on what we might think we are in terms of our identity. So, time for a little interlude. Have you seen this video of building planes while you fly? Anybody seen this? This is like to climb mountains. I 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 like to climb mount
Okay, so why do you think I was showing you that? What's the relevance of, did you get the joke? What do you think is the relevance of that for what I've been trying to say? Any ideas? I hate people who use random YouTube videos, so that's why I'm asking just to make sure that you, that you get it, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we're all constructing what we're doing as we're flying in it. During our journey, things are changing all the time. Yeah. So we're not in this static state of disciplinary um, uniformity or, uh, or, or stability. We're actually making ourselves as we go along. So let's come to another question. In all the different places where I've worked, I said to you that I could see the same disciplines, same subject areas, looking very different in different locales and contexts. And one of the case examples in the book is by Paul Ashwin, who talks about sociology looking very different in different types of institution and the students experiencing it very differently in different types of institution. So I would like you to think this time of your examples. Think of where you see different places, different periods of time, and how a discipline might manifest itself differently in each of those sites. Okay, so if you Spend a couple of minutes again discussing at your table and I will ask you for one or two examples. Okay, folks. Could we take a couple of examples of that? How things have changed or evolved over time? If you are... As old as me, you'll be able to think of lots of examples, but the, all of you might think of some. So who's got an example of changes over time? Brilliant, thank you. Mark's got the mic behind you. As, oops, thanks. Um, as simple as this, we got to watch a YouTube video during a conference now. A decade back, I think that was not possible. So um, uh, changes are something that keeps happening. Yeah. So I was just telling my friend here, it's either you grab the opportunity or you get back home. So you, you're left with just these two options if you're in a fast-moving world. Yep. Okay. That's an interesting insight because in some departments, you grab the opportunity and you become very unpopular. <laughs> you try and shift them in the direction you think you should be going. It's not all, but okay, thank you. Has anybody got an example of a specific discipline, subject area? Well, I'm going to be contrary, if that's all right, contrary genie. Um, I've got the, the opposite, I think, and it's, it's when you've put the dimension of time on there that's made me think. Because I think, and, and you also mentioned Scottish universities, because my understanding of Scottish universities was that they were basically set up by the people. Even Edinburgh was set up as a, as a civic institution. And medicine 
was at the heart of those civic institutions, and particularly as, as they developed in the UK in Birmingham and Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Bristol. I hope I haven't missed any. Um, and, meds and I've been interviewing in medical schools, and the slide that you mentioned a couple of slides ago about practices and culture, and etc., I think there's not been a change. And I think a lot of what, um, how they see themselves in that discipline is, is conceptualised in, in the sense of we've done it like this in the past, but it has a value because the value is connected with the civic. So that's just a contrary view. That's a really, really interesting point, yeah. I share, I share that. I can see that at the institutional level especially. My own institution was set up in 1875 as an institution which was meant to prove the, improve the dire health of the Scottish nation, which is still dire. Um, and the, the values behind that, although the institution has changed enormously, the values behind it have not changed. So they have been a constant. Okay. So that, I mean, that, that's just echoing my research. So Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you, Contrary Jean. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, I'll take one more example, Mark. There's a few hands up. Do you want to? That one over here? Sorry. Um, my current discipline is educational technology. And through the decades development of this area, we could see that at the very beginning, researchers focused on the um, advantage of technology and, uh, and to understand how ICT could be applied to enhance the pedagogical innovation. But in practice, we found that the teachers will adopt ICT not only because of the, the uh, advantage of technology, but there are some other reasons. So in recent years, we can see that the researchers' focuses have moved to um, take the sociocultural approach to understand uh, how teachers, for example, epistemological beliefs or the collegiality in culture, um, in, uh, professional culture or the leadership in the managerial culture influence teachers' ICT usage. So this transformation can be a good example to this um, changing nature yeah, of disciplines. That's a really Thanks. nice example. Thank you very much. Okay, let me give you a couple of my own examples from the Tribes book. Um, first one is engineering. Chris Winberg in South Africa wrote a chapter on how learning and teaching is done in engineering and the relationship between academic knowledge and professional knowledge which students in engineering are having to bridge these two worlds, for example when they do placements on projects, and the knowledge claims between and across engineering fields. Let me give you a couple of examples specifically. So in the academic field, the epistemic relation, in other words, the knowledge base of the students is extremely important. That's what is really prioritized by the academic staff, according to Chris Winberg. The world, when the students went out into placements or project work, on the other hand, they suddenly found that the, the clients wanted people who could do the job, who could produce a good engineering piece of work, a good project, and that the social relation was far more important than just the knowledge base. So there was a real clash in the values of 
the academic world and the professional world and the students were having to move and accommodate both of these. Um, the stuff about student projects was interesting because it wasn't just the differences between what was going on in the professional world and the academic world, but in the academic world itself, tutors on the same programme had very different views of the value and how to do good student projects. So even within what looked like the same subject discipline, there was real dissent. That raised questions about the whole identity of engineering academics. And I see it a lot in the professional people that I work with, or the people who have been professionals in their field before they become academics. Lots of nurse educators, people who have been in, um, in business and come into the academic world. And they are a real interesting mix of identities. Their knowledge base is not the, the main thing that identifies them. It, the, the, the Winberg chapter also brought up questions about the whole identity of engineering itself. Because what sounds like this homogenous activity, which is held together by a love of mathematics and problem solving, actually, when you looked at it more closely, there were lots of, um, lots of fragmentation between the different engineering academics. I think it's Bourdieu who talks about the helicopter effect, isn't it? So when you rise up above something, it can look very homogenous, and the closer in you go, the more, uh, and, and with more granularity, the more diverse, the more varied what you see suddenly becomes. So homing in on what engineering students do and what engineering academics do really highlights a lot of these fundamental differences. Here's another interesting one. I mentioned nursing. Anne Laiho from Finland did a chapter on nursing science, and she was talking about what makes a discipline what it is. Nursing's this wonderful, constantly mutating area, um, which has changed over time. Its place in universities is completely different. I love this picture with all of these ancient nursing folk. But the knowledge base has changed over time. The maturity of the discipline and the confidence that goes with that has changed over time. The status and the, its legitimacy as an academic subject. And there are still lots of people who say, we don't need nursing people who have got degrees. We want them to be able to do the job. And geographically, where the different nursing specialisms are taught is co-location with medicine or other allied health subjects. So real changes over time in practices, in the agents of the discipline. So there are now professors in, in, in nursing. The permeable boundaries that I mentioned earlier, where's the boundary between nursing, community nursing, midwifery, physiotherapy, links to other disciplines which are constantly being strengthened and the elastic keeps moving, and the discourses that are used. 
Now, those are some of the dimensions that I can think of that have changed in and that they, these writers have highlighted about nursing and engineering. Can you think of any other dimensions? Did you discuss any other dimensions? So apart from what we do in our subject, who does it, relationships with other disciplines, the profile, how high or low it is, whether it's global or local, for example. Can you think of any other dimensions that maybe I've omitted? Okay, interprofessional, yeah. And that's without even mentioning people like clinicians who supervise students out in the field and the kind of status that they have. I find that increasing numbers of them are increasingly interested in, in the academic world, in, the, in academic life. Thank you. Any other dimensions? One at the back there? Absolutely. Have you got an, a specific reference on that? Absolutely. Um, in Scotland, the widening participation, I know it is in England and Wales and Northern Ireland as well, but very strong emphasis on the widening participation agenda. That is a real political driver. And in all of the, in all of the institutions now have negotiated, the, the, these things manifest themselves in what goes on in daily life. So now each institution has an outcomes agreement which is where you set out your targets for how you will use the funding council's money. And one of the agendas is widening participation. So big political agenda. Every university has to say how they're going to do it, to what extent they're going to do it. Anybody here from St. Andrews University? It's a real political issue for them. They currently have 14 students at the university from the most deprived areas. Last year, they had 13. Their, their objective is 20. Politically, that is very challenging um, compared to some of the other universities who are working with very different parameters. Okay. So, I've kind of talked a bit around disciplines and our, our identities as academics and researchers and to what extent those identities are pure and to what extent the shifting territories around us like the political ones that you've just mentioned are changing us and I'm asking does that metaphor of tribe still have value or have you got other metaphors that you would use to describe the people that you work with in order to teach 
and do research. I don't want you to be rude, but what, how could you describe, if you weren't to use the tribe's metaphor, what other metaphor might work to highlight some of the essential qualities of those groups? So again, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to decide whether or not you like the tribe's metaphor, is it helpful, and whether you've got any alternatives, and I will ask you what those are. Off you go. Okay, folks, can I just ask you, you've, you've not had long to think about this. Let me see whether you think, is tribes a useful metaphor? Just stick your hand up if you still think that it's got some value, more or less. You can hedge a bit. Yeah? I mean, I do. I, I, I still like it, but I'm hedging. Okay. Um, any other alternatives that you would like to offer? Okay. Um, I was saying that I, I do still like the, the church class, but thinking more into tribal communities and relationships. And then we thought that maybe communities would be a, a better metaphor, but you're not quite sure whether that, that fits, but more of showing more relationships um, and how one discipline still needs the assistance. So I was thinking, I worked with Chris Winberg. She's at the institution close to me. Ah. And I worked with the engineering faculty at Stellenbosch University, as well as with the law faculty, where there's been public crit criticism that our engineers and our lawyers do not know how to write. And I'm from the social sciences, so they've needed tutors and coordinators from the social sciences to... Only the engineers and the lawyers. <laughs> to, start, about everybody. Yeah, to start with, with writing skills within their modules, and that has been very interesting. So while we might still consider to have those separate tribes, we do need an inter-community. Okay. Okay, so communities says something to you. There's a guy behind you, Francois. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Um, we, we, we found the tribal um, discussion really interesting because we felt that if you were part of a tribe, you would never want to leave the tribe. So someone supporting Celtic would never want to leave that tribe and go and support Rangers. So there was always a, an exception oh, to the rule. Once a Scott, always a Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other metaphor that we came up with as well was almost like a, oh, a, a garden centre, um, almost like a, you, know, you have the nursery where you have in the corner, if you treat that group of plants very badly, then you're not going to get a very good crop. Whereas if this particular one can cross-pollinate and you can also then um, sell them, to maybe another university at a much greater cost. Um, so there was, um, there was that sort of growing, nurturing talent within, within an area that would eventually go off into the world and, um, and, and look very neat in other gardens. Um, that was a sort of and a different metaphor. And do you think metaphor. that entrepreneurialism was always part of your disciplinary um, culture? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Thank you have you. to find money from nowhere sometimes. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll take Thank just you. one more. We were thinking of the idea of ingredients and cooking, and perhaps there's a set of ingredients in front of the table, and that flour could be a pizza base here, and with different ingredients, that flour could be a cake, and that there's something about that, that the flour remains what it is, but in combination with other ingredients can become something quite different temporarily, and so a sort of mix and match idea. Interesting. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to... Helen's hovering because we're approaching... 
Okay, one more. Thank you. Um, I, I'd suggest that the idea of tribes did actually make... Sorry, I'm Chris, Chris Ring from Nottingham Trent University. I suggest that the idea of tribes did make quite a lot of sense uh, in an era of higher education where there was a very strong disciplinary base and uh, at a time when the key purpose of higher education to a greater or lesser extent was felt to be the advancement of learning um, and, the, uh, and, and the promotion of... of uh, a learning culture. I think now that we've moved into a new regime of higher education, which is much, much more in instrumental, that devalues the disciplinary basis of our, our alliances. And our alliances are formed on a much more pragmatic basis. So in social work, for instance, we reach across disciplines um, for, uh, I suppose, ways of understanding situations which will help us to help our students to deliver the goods which we are training them yeah. to, you know, to provide. Yeah. So we work within, very much within, I suppose, an instrumental setting, and that's a change in the, in the ethos of the university. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking recently is thinking back to Ian McNay, because I like dichotomies. Um, Ian McNay, 1995, he divided universities into four types, collegium, bu bureaucracy, entrepreneurial, and I can't remember the fourth one, you may well remember. And thinking about how that's, um, those changes and the movements in what universities are doing in terms of their major purpose is a major determinant of what we do. So we may all become garden centre workers over time. Okay, I'm going to move finally, very quickly, to, you will find all of this if you're interested in pursuing it in your, um, in the slides. But my, my final question is, what does all this mean for you? So what? What does it mean? Um, for me, it's not only an interesting research question, it's also about what do we do in our academic life and how do we cope with things that are going on. And it brings into relief changes to what we do, how we do it, who we do it for, who we do it with, when and how much. Have you been tuning into this stuff around the merge? Have you read about the merge? The idea is that we are merging our personal and professional lives. So women with small kids may be going to work, going home, putting the kids to bed, and then going back to work using whatever electronic means might be available. There are some real changes there in how we work as a society, never mind as academics. So all of these things are changing continuously as a result of these territories that are shifting around us, partly to do with policy, partly to do with other um, political drivers. It may mean that you will have a much more mutating career than people before you might have done. So, for example, many doctoral students already find work outside of their own discipline, but you may mutate more between disciplines like I have done depending on what's um, available. Career options may be far more uncertain. You may find yourself trying hard to make sense of changing parameters 
because when things are changing, they become a lot more opaque. So trying to make sense and navigate your way through that. Um, Lynn McAlpin's 2010 book, if you are an, a newer researcher, I think is very helpful, very interesting, considering a lot of these issues from the newer researcher point of view. Um, and then intentionality, what do you try and do regarding the three strands of your identity tra trajectory? And again, this is Lynn McAlpin talking about the trajectory as a metaphor. I actually don't find that terribly helpful because I see a cannonball coming out of a cannon up and straight back down again, whereas I imagine that what a lot of us will be doing is much more weaving, diving and weaving and changing our portfolio as we go along. But she and her colleagues highlight um, intellectual, networking and institutional parameters that we need to think about as we are being agents in our own identity trajectory. So I'm going to finish on that. Good luck with your identity trajectories. I believe we've got a minute for just one or two very quick questions. No? Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Hello. <laughs> um, I just want to say uh, thank you to Ronnie for that very inspirational and thought-provoking start to our conference. Um, we have run out of time, unfortunately. The first sessions are due to start in 10 minutes. Um, but what we've, um, Ronnie will be here at lunchtime if you have any questions for her. The other thing, um, we had a bit of a brainwave from Mark, is if you can't get to Ronnie and you have a question for her that you'd like to ask, you are on Twitter now, aren't you? So we could tweet you questions. If you don't have a Twitter account, you'll f feel free to use one of ours um, and we can ask um, Ronnie um, uh, questions um, later on. But um, I'd really like to, um, again, just thank Ronnie uh, for a brilliant talk this morning. Um, please um, give her a round of applause again. Thank you. Uh, just to say as well that Ronnie's slides will be on the web as well. And are we all set to go yep, to the next session? Thank sessions? you very much, Sean. We're all set to go. Um, your first of your breakout sessions, your paper presentations, as you go out, you will see SRHE people outside direct you around this corridor and you'll find your rooms. And then we will have um, lunch back in the Beaumaris Lounge at uh, quarter past one. So I suggest you head off to the rooms that you're presenting in and the rooms that you're going to go to, and we'll see you back in the lounge at lunchtime. Thanks very much. <laughs>